97. We'll go ahead and uh, start out reading through the whole chapter. And some really uh, important and interesting things I want to try to cover in this chapter tonight that hopefully will help you when studying your Bible. So we're, we're, um, you know, we're going to talk about specific things from this chapter, but I also want to use this chapter to kind of teach some other lessons that are very important in your Bible study. Because some of the things that we're going to see in here, uh, a lot of times some of the things you see in Psalms are kind of repetitive. You know, they're mentioned in a lot of the Psalms, some of the stuff we've already covered. And so there's some specific things in here, though, that I want to kind of focus on that, um, to just kind of show you an error that people often make when studying their scriptures that often gets them in trouble. But look at verse 1. It says, The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of the isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. His lightnings enlighten the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all ye gods. Zion heard and was glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord. For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth, thou art exalted far above all gods. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. He preserveth the souls of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. So, uh, notice, first thing I want you to notice in this chapter is the righteousness of God is highlighted quite a bit in here. And that's really important. His righteousness, His holiness. That is one of the main attributes of our God is He is a righteous and a holy God. And that is highlighted quite a bit in this chapter. And we're going to get back to that. But there's really there's three ways I would say that we can kind of interpret this particular psalm. And, uh, and this could be what we're, the way we would uh, interpret this psalm, these three ways. It could be applied to many of the psalms that we read. So some psalms, you can interpret them metaphorically. All right? Some things, they are just kind of metaphors. It's not always literal what you see in Psalms. Okay? Remember, these are songs. Okay? These are Psalms. These are poems. These are something that you sing. And we often sing things, you know, a lot of the songs that we sing, they're not really meant to be taken literally. Okay? Right, for example, we sing the song when we sing the song How Great Thou Art, we often will uh, there's the one verse that says, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Okay? Now, when we take that verse of that song, I know that's just a verse of a song, you know, are we supposed to then start, hey, let's see if we can make that happen, or, or just how much paper would that take, you know? How many gallons of ink would that be? And how many words could we write? Do we Are we supposed to start estimating all that stuff? No, what is that verse just trying to do? That verse is just trying to say, hey, we're singing a song here about how great God is. And while we're going to do the best we can in the words of these songs to make God sound great, we could never do it justice no matter how hard we tried. That's what basically what that verse is saying. That we could never do God justice with our words. Okay? And so obviously, the oceans are never going to all be ink. And every man is not going to be ascribed by trade. You know, it's just, it's metaphorically speaking, we see verses like that in this passage. Now, um, so let's, let's read a little bit of it again. So it says, uh, The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of the isles be glad thereof. And that's obviously referring to all the people. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. His lightnings are enlightened as uh, enlightened the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Okay? Now, 
what do we do with this here, okay? Has this ever happened where when the Lord came, the hills melted like wax? Is it ever going to happen? No, I, I don't think so. And I think with this passage too, when we read it, if we want to really read into it and really get deep, which we're not going to do, you know, I think you could you could interpret this passage prophetically for the future. Because is not Jesus going to come back and destroy his enemies? But when he does it, is there going to be a fire that goes before him when it happens? When Jesus returns to earth, are the hills going to melt? Okay, no, they're not. Okay. But what's it saying here? Alright? Basically what it's trying to do here, in a poetic way, it's just showing when it's talking about how the lightnings enlighten the world. And the Bible does say as lightning shines from the east unto the west, even so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So we got lightning there, right? But at the same time, basically what this is trying to do is just showing how the earth nothing can stand up against God. Okay, you know, if you're fighting a battle a big hill can often be a challenge, can't it? Especially you got to run up that hill. And especially if the enemy's at the top of that hill. Well, when the Lord comes, the hills are going to melt before Him. What's that saying? It means they're, just, they're, they're nothing to Him. He can go right through Him. It's just trying to, in a very poetic way, just say, you know, no ops, there, there is no obstacle for our God. Okay? He made the hills. They're nothing to Him. Okay, they melted his presence. All right, we often will say, you know, like we might say somebody melted at his presence. You know, trying to be intimidating. You know, if we were to get in a fight, you know, you would just melt at the sight of me. You know, what are we saying? You'll just give up. You know, you won't stand a chance. You won't even try to put up a fight. We're not speaking literally. Okay, and there's many things in Psalms that aren't they're not meant to be taken literally. They're they're poetic. They're things that are just used to just kind of put a thought in your head. And ultimately what it's just trying to do is just saying God is greater than anything that's out there. Anything that's in creation, it's nothing to Him. And so, you know, and we could, but we could also with this passage, we could take it, we could interpret it literally for right now. In other words, we could take this psalm and we would use it to just sing about God. And to sing about the power of God. And to sing about the righteousness of God. We could sing about a God that the hills melt before Him. These things, the, the songs that we sing that talk about the greatness of God, just like the song, How Great Thou Art, they, these things are meant to just kind of put us in admiration of our God. Now, is it ever inappropriate to be that way? What is one thing that we see them all singing in the book of Revelation? Thou art worthy. Okay? Whatever we want to praise God for, He's worthy of it. If He wanted to make the hills melt before Him, He can make the hills melt before Him. Okay? Whatever He wanted to do, He can do. And us just singing about the power of God and the might of God and just you know, even using extremes to kind of get a point across. Okay? There's nothing wrong with that because He is worthy. He can do, he can do anything. He can do whatever He wants. And this psalm, part of why it's there and many like it, it's there to just lift up the praise of God. And there's and so we need to understand though that a lot of these things, you know, metaphorically speaking, and people often will just, they'll take some of these different verses in there and they just kind of run with it. When there's, uh, like Song of Solomon for example too. There's a lot of things in the Song of Solomon that are cl- clearly literal. I mean, I think there's one verse that talks about her sheep or her teeth being like a flock of sheep. We really think her teeth look like a flock of sheep. What's it just saying? It means they're really white, I guess. You know, way you could say it. There's, there's lots of things that we see like that in the Bible, and when people there's there's people out there that want to just get overly literal with the Bible sometimes. To where it's stupid. And that's what all the people do that want to prove a flat earth with the Bible. They're always going overly literal with passages that aren't meant to be literal. It's like, okay, if we're going to go that literal with that passage, let's read some more of that. And in other parts where they wouldn't even think about going literal, that's clearly figurative. You know, but it is over there. And everybody, we all like to pick and choose. And everybody does this stuff. Rucktards are real bad about this too. They like to go overly literal with some things that are clearly figurative. 
And they will. They'll pull that one verse out there. You know, they'll take the one, verse four. You know, his lightnings enlighten the world. You know, so this is you know this is a second coming thing. You know, because we got a cross reference here. You know, as lightning shines from the east even unto the west. You know, and now every time we see lightning in the Bible, it's talking about the return of Christ. You know, that's just foolish. We shouldn't do things like that. That's getting real sloppy on your Bible interpretation. And these people that go crazy literal with stuff in the Bible, they often, and you know, just a little bit of study will make these people look stupid. But what's said about God in this psalm is how we should see God all the time. Okay? So if we if we're singing about his power, if we're singing about his righteousness, these things are going to be in our hearts. And it's going to be how we feel, it's going to affect the way we think about him. And that's good. Having psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in our hearts, they'll, it, they come in handy when we face troubles. Okay? When we're facing a mountain in our life, figuratively speaking, we can have it in our heart that you know what? Hills and mountains, they melt before Him. Are we, so, that verse said, we're not going to take that and go look at a hill and just say, God could melt that. Even though He could if He wanted to. Okay, but that that's not what that verse is there for. You know, proving someday when a mountain's gonna melt. But it's just showing how these things are nothing for him, and you know what? Our problems are nothing for him. He can overcome any of these things. That's how these things are meant to be taken. And so, you know, for example, if this is something that's referring to when Christ returns, okay, it mentions how a fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. Okay? What's you know, right there, that's a reminder of when Jesus Christ returns, okay, what's one of the things he's gonna do? He's gonna destroy his enemies. Okay, and we need it that's good for us to have this in our heart, because we know in the tribulation that the Antichrist is gonna make war with the saints and overcome them. But we will know it will be in our hearts that you know what? Hey, a fire goeth before him and destroyeth all his enemies. Just wait till Jesus comes back. He's gonna get you. He's going to destroy you. Now, is He going to do it with fire? Well, not according to what we see in Revelation. In Revelation, it says, out of His mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. Talks, you know, so, it, once again, figurative here. Alright? Figurative here. Because just like, too, a fire, when a fire goes before something, what does it do? You know, it burns everything up in its path. It destroys everything. And that's what Jesus is going to do when He comes back. You know, He's going to be just destroying everything that's in front of Him because He's able to do that. So there's many things that we see in Psalms that are not meant to be taken literally. These things are poetic. doesn't mean the Bible's lying. Okay? For example, you know, if you told your wife, you know, if you said something to your wife like, you know, your hair is like a field of wheat in the breeze. Okay? Now your wife would probably appreciate that. Alright, but does it really look like a field of wheat in the breeze? Okay. Now what are you saying when you say that? Alright? That's just a fancy way of saying, hey, it's just beautiful. Alright? Just because it's it's pretty to see a big field of wheat blowing in the breeze. That's a pretty sight, right? So you compare your wife's hair to that, you know? It's just it's it's a fancy way to say she's beautiful. Alright? And just just try it sometime. I'm sure you know she'll appreciate it if you do that. But are you speaking literally? No, it's it's figurative, and we see a lot of things like that. You're just you're just trying to be fancy in saying your hair looks beautiful. That's what you're trying to do. And so verses three, four, and five I think are clearly figurative. You know I think too with you know with the fire said it's just talking about him destroying everything in his path. I think the lightning says you know his lightnings enlighten the world. The earth saw and trembled. You know, it's it's lighting up the sky. Okay, usually when we see lightning, it only just lightens up, you know, things for a second, right? Have you ever seen one of those really long lightning bolts when it's real dark out and it's just like everything's lit up? It seems like for a few seconds. Okay, you know, when you see that, you're pretty impressed, right? But man, his lightnings they lighten up the sky. I mean, it's bright out because of his lightnings. It's just it's just showing how impressive he is. Okay, and then. Um, you know, the melting hills, just showing that nothing can stand before him. So verses 6 through 12, what we see here, it starts really just promoting the righteousness of God. And here's and so there's some important things I want you to see here. So look at verse 6. It says, The heavens declare his righteousness, 
and all the people see His glory. Okay? One thing, okay, how do that, once again, how do the heavens declare His righteousness? Okay, we've talked about before how the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, when you look at the sky, when you look at creation, you have to say there is a God, right? Okay, I think that's pretty obvious. But can anybody tell me how does creation tell us that our God is a righteous God? Okay. So th- here, think, think about this. What if I showed you, uh, I'm, I'm not an art person at all. I have no art, to, but uh, like, you know, all right, Van Gogh. All right, have you ever seen some of Van Gogh's paintings? That guy looks crazy. All right. Now, I, I've heard that he was crazy. But to me, his art tells me he is crazy. Okay? Leonardo da Vinci. His art tells me he was a homo. Okay? Um, Norman Rockwell. When my wife and I got married, she liked a lot of Norman Rockwell stuff. But his stuff always creeped me out. It was always stuff with little boys. Half the times the rear ends were showing. I was convinced, I'm convinced he was a perv. And I told my wife, no Norman Rockwell stuff in our house. She's like, I like Norman I was like, no Norman Rockwell stuff in our house. I'm convinced the guy was a pervert. Alright? I, I could be dead wrong. Might have been the nicest guy ever. But people's art often says something about him, doesn't it? And when you see something that's really just dark and demented, you think, what kind of tortured soul was that? But when you see this creation, it's like, how could anything but a righteous God make a sunset like he did? When you see things like the rainbows, when you see things like the stars on a really dark night where you can see the galaxies and the Milky Way and all those things, when you see that stuff, something that is that magnificent, something that is that beautiful, when you go into the mountains and you see those things and and, and the oceans and all the things that the Bible talks about, you just can't help but look at this creation and say, that's a righteous God right there. And just like some people's art can creep you out, okay, there is some art that, you know, that doesn't. It does the opposite. You think, well, you know, what a great person this must be. You know, it's just, it's so beautiful. Well, you know, and that is what create, how cre- the creation, it declares the righteousness of God because you cannot help but look at this creation and think, what a mighty God, but also what a righteous God. When you just see some of the beautiful things that there is to behold. And think about this too. You look at how just beautiful creation is and think about the fact that this this earth is cursed. It's cursed and it's still this beautiful. What Anything bad that you see on this earth, it's not because of God, it's because of us. Okay? So, I'm telling you right now, you know, the creation of God, it speaks of His righteousness. Only a righteous God is capable of of this creation. You can't help but look at it and say that's a great God and that's a good God that we serve. And when you do that, okay? I thought that a few times when we were flying last week. You know, I'm, I'm just looking at the scenery from several miles up in the sky and, just, and you, you're just like, we've got a great God and a good God. And you know what? That's the understatement of the year. When you say, when you look at creation and you're like, wow, what... Almighty God we serve. Do you realize that is the understatement of the year? And people who think, all right, people like David who wrote a lot of the Psalms, it's not enough for him to just say, it's a good God. What does he want to do? I want to find a better way to say it. And so what did he do? He would get he'd get fancy with his writing. He'd get fancy with his words. Just try to do something to paint a picture in your head of a mighty and a powerful and a righteous God. And that is what these psalms do. That's what that's what they are meant to do. And that's why we need to have these things in our heart because that's how we'll think about God. We won't see Him like a lot of the world sees Him as this mean, vindictive God that was always telling them to go kill all the women and children. That's how they always see God. As someone mean, as someone cruel. They don't see Him as someone that is holy and righteous. They don't see these things because they're not in the Scriptures like they should be. And therefore, they have a... Uh, a distorted picture in their mind, and so that's where the so when you do when we see these things like what you know you hear preachers like ain't God good? Well, yep, absolutely. But 
I want to say it better than that. And that's where Psalms come in. Psalms say it as good as I think it's probably possible for a man to say it. It's not enough for us to just state the fact about God. It's okay for us to find ways to express things in a better and more glorious way. And I think that's why musical instruments are wonderful. So in Psalms 150, we see him mentioning, you know, praising on the cymbals and loud cymbals and high sounding cymbals, stringed instruments, organs, praising with all these things. Hey, let's see if we can find, thank God we've had some artistic people, some great songwriters, some great musicians that were able to take instruments that can make beautiful sounds and say, hey, let's see how we can take these things and let's put them all together and use it to just try to glorify God. And isn't it a lot better, okay? You know, if I say, if I were to stand here and I say, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad, and built the lofty skies. Now, that sounds kind of pretty because it rhymes. Okay? But isn't it a lot better when it's sung? Don't we like singing that a lot better on Sunday morning? Got a you know, full crowd, we got both pianos playing, we start singing that song? It's great stuff, isn't it? And you know what? It's even better if we can add some trumpets and some stringed instruments. And the more instruments and things you can get on there, the better it is. Because it helps us you know, just glorify God even more in a beautiful way. And there's just nothing like hearing a full orchestra belting out one of the hymns. It's, it's a great thing. And, and I, I, I love music. And I think we ought to use music because when we do that, okay, when you... I'm, when you when we play a beautiful song like that, when you hear a beautiful orchestration of something, that sticks in your head. And if you know the words of these songs, okay, and, these, and these words are biblical, they go along with what the Bible says, and they do a good job of lifting up God, that's going to be in your head all week. That's going to be in your heart. And, it's going to, and we're going to actually feel these things and believe these things about God, which is what we need. Turn over to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, but back to, you know, just not going crazy literal with stuff. Okay? Because this, and I, I see this happen with stuff all the time. It's to the point it's just, it's nauseating and annoying. But, and I, I've seen, I just, you know, in the last week I saw some goofy stuff. Alright? Where people just sometimes, in thinking too much, you know, they, I don't know how to put this exactly. It's like, you know, they're thinking so hard that they end up being stupid. Alright? And let me show you, and I haven't heard anybody do this, but I think this is a good example, alright? And I have seen things similar to this in church. I've heard preachers get up and do stuff like this. But John 21, 25 says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. This is talking about during the life of Jesus, alright? I believe this verse too is talking specifically about during those 40 days after the resurrection. So according to John, okay, now if I'm a rucktard, this is what I'm going to do. According to John, those 40 days, Jesus did so much stuff, all the books of the world could not contain things to be written. Now let's think about that for a little bit, alright? You know, and then I, this is where I make myself look so, real smart. You know, the Library of Congress has, you know, 10 zillion books. Alright? There's room on this planet for, you know, 100 million libraries of Congress. Multiply 100 million times 10 zillion, and we have this many books. You know how many words that is? You know, 15 quadrillion, you know? And they throw out all these numbers that look smart. It's not possible to do that much stuff in 40 days. Therefore, during that time, Jesus froze time and spent literally, it would take millions of years to do that much stuff. You know, and just, you know, just come up with crazy stuff. Now, is that verse right there? Are we supposed to then figure out how many books? What is John doing right there? He's just trying to say, you know, there's so much more stuff that I could write about. So many things happened. So much that could, that could be said about what Jesus did. We're not supposed to go and just look at that and start trying to figure it out and then try to figure out how much stuff happened. Literally, I mean, I, there was a lot. I'm not trying to take away from anything that Jesus did. But we're not supposed to read stuff like that 
and then just go crazy literal with it. If we do, what ends up happening, we start going off in a la-la land. We start going off into stupidity world. You know, we've all heard the things before too. I've heard preachers get up and take like 20 minutes. Like 20 minutes talking about all the prophecies that were fulfilled just at the birth of Jesus Christ or at, at the cross. And then they start doing, you know, somebody figured out the odds of those things taking place. And, you know, and they, they talk about how many, you know, one with, you know, 50 some zeros on it. You know, the chances of that happening would be like filling up the state of Texas with quarters and you going through and just picking the right quarter. You know, just, do we need to do that? Do it, you know, well, what if I did pick the right quarter? You know, it just, you know what if Jesus just got lucky? That's stupid. Alright? That is, that is so stupid. Some things, we're not supposed to just take them, you know, when, when the Bible's speaking, and then try to overly analyze it and get real literal. We're supposed to look at it and just say, what an amazing God that we have. Hey, it's talking in there in Psalms about His power. The hills melt before Him. Well, that means for hills to melt, we would have to get up to this many degrees Fahrenheit. Therefore, Jesus Christ is able to put off... You know, the, that's not what we're supposed to do with that. That's not what the Bible's talking about. That's just, that's just foolishness. And we're going to get ourselves in trouble with that kind of stuff. So let's, let's look at a few things too. Because in, um, in the last part of Psalms 97, it's focusing on the righteousness of God. Okay, and look what it says. You know, the heavens declare His righteousness, and all the people see His glory. Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols. Worship Him, all ye gods. Our God is superior. Okay, their gods are idols; they can't even do anything. Okay, but our God is real; He's righteous. Zion heard and was glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of Thy judgments, O Lord. He judges righteously. For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth, and thou art exalted far above all gods. Ye that love the Lord, hate evil. He preserveth the souls of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous. Now, what's something that we know very well today as New Testament Christians? Where does our righteousness come from? It comes from Jesus Christ. Okay? And why do we need to give thanks to His righteousness? Because it's His righteousness, because of His righteousness that we have righteousness. Not any works of our own, but the works of Jesus Christ. That is why we can have righteousness, because He is righteous. Therefore, it is appropriate for us to sing about the righteousness of God. It's appropriate for us to talk about the righteousness of God and to sing about His righteousness. And let's talk about His righteousness for a little bit. All right, go to Matthew chapter uh, nine. Or, you know, before you go over Matthew chapter nine, let's go to Second Timothy chapter two. I want, I want to. I don't. You know, there was there was some, uh, you know, typical Facebook internet drama that took place in the new IFB world in the last week that if I don't know if any of you saw it or not. It was rather interesting and rather stupid, basically, but a debate started. I got a phone call a little over a week ago from a guy who had apparently a discussion came forward about whether or not it was possible for Jesus to have ever sinned. Okay? And let me just say right off the bat, absolutely not. Okay? It was absolutely not possible for Jesus to sin. But he was asking some questions, okay? When you say it was impossible for Jesus to sin, and you say no, people often ask questions, alright? There's a few questions that will immediately pop into a person's mind. And I, I've had several people in the past, they've asked me these questions when this comes up. Because I've preached on this before. In fact, I'm going to go over some... I, I went back and I was looking at some of my notes. Uh, I've got some notes here from a message I preached January 20th, 2013. Alright, so this is something I've, you know, I've been around for a while. But 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. And now, while this debate's going on, I'm thinking, I've got to be missing something here, alright, you know. And, and Bill McGregor, some of you know he is, he was like really wanting pastors like get involved and weigh in on this. But I'm looking at everything and I'm thinking, this looks like a really stupid argument. Really stupid. 
But I kept thinking, maybe I'm missing something. So I just kept my mouth shut. I just didn't say anything because things were getting so weird. And because and you know, people are asking questions and stuff. And look what verse 23 says. It says, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strives. The question, I think what started this, the question that came up was, is it because God's all, you know, he's all powerful, right? God can do anything, right? Was it possible for God to throw a saved person into hell? That's a stupid question. Alright? And you know, when somebody asks you a question like that, that is what we would call a foolish and unlearned question. You know what? Avoid that. That's what I doubt. Like, I'm staying out of this conversation. This is going to get stupid real fast. Okay? And it says in the servant of the Lord must not strive but be gentle on all men, apt to teach, patient. Well, and I don't know everything in the story. All right? I'm still thinking I've got to be missing something because this looks so stupid. I've got to be missing some details. But I don't know. I'm afraid I have seen most of the details and it's just stupid. But that question comes up. So the question comes up, was it possible for Jesus to have sinned? And apparently, based on some of the questions, some thought that they were saying Jesus could sin. And so it turned into this big thing. Bill McGregor, he wanted like everybody to just jump on this bandwagon. We were going to lead this, you know, we were going to have this big fight, you know, for the impeccability of Christ. Okay? And, but at this, while he's like trying to lead this fight, I'm, I'm looking out at the enemy and I'm thinking, I'm not seeing any enemy. I'm seeing a couple dumb questions. Alright? I'm seeing a couple foolish and unlearned questions that I think we're supposed to avoid. But at the same time, you know, the servant of the Lord must not strive to be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. Okay, and the one guy that I called that was asking me some questions, I just answered those questions. I was like, well, hey, you know, I see where you're coming from, but here's where you're wrong. Alright? Yeah, no, it was not possible for Jesus to have sinned. Alright? And, and I'm not even going to go into all the stuff on that, but uh, just... You know, goofy questions. Look at what it says in Titus 3 9. Titus 3 9. He says, But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. Okay? Once again, this all got started because of stupid questions that caused contentions. But at the same time, it seemed like, from my end, that when the stupid questions came, it was like immediately, you aren't saved. You know, you aren't saved for asking that question. You know what? People sometimes are going to read things in the Bible and they're going to have questions. Even on the Trinity, for example. If somebody is new to the Scriptures, if they're newly saved, when you say these three are one, it's going to cause some legitimate questions. And you have to be patient with people. Okay? you got to give them a chance. Okay? If somebody comes up and the first time they're hearing about this, they start asking some of the questions. We're not going to declare them unsaved right then. Okay? But, after we've taught them, we've shown them the Scriptures, and even if they've declared some things wrong, we're going to give them that first and second admonition, aren't we? And then after that, reject them. But it's like it seemed like what happened in this situation, some dumb questions were asked, and they got declared unsaved. And then the funny thing is, so as Bill McGregor's trying to lead his charge, the thing is, everybody agrees. Jesus couldn't sin. But that wasn't enough. We didn't believe hard enough. It's like, yeah, I, it, was, it was so weird. But it's good for us to talk about the righteousness of Christ. There's some amazing things. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 9, in verse 18. I forgot to print off all these verses, so I'm going to have to turn to all of them. Matthew chapter 9. In verse 18. I'm going to show you, to me, okay, if I may go into what could end up being foolish territory, okay, because Jesus could not sin. Alright? He was not capable of sin. I'm going to show you here verses I used to prove that it just, it literally was not possible for him to sin. Okay? And it said, and Brother McGregor, he was like going after Pastor Johnson for saying, you know, he made one statement where it kind of sounded like he was saying, yeah, maybe Jesus could have sinned. But, you know, there's different levels of this too, right? For example, Jesus had a physical body that, you know, he had the strength, let's say, 
to strangle someone, right? Okay? Do I have the physical capability to beat up an old lady? Yes. Would I ever do that? No. Alright, now is it possible for me to do it? Alright, is it, I have a sin nature, you know, I'd like to think it, I don't know how I could do that, but maybe if I was drunk or drugged up, then maybe I could. Alright? But, Jesus Christ, just because He had a physical capability for something does not mean it was possible for Him to sin. You know what I'm saying? You know, Jesus could have taken a bow and arrow and shot somebody between the eyes. He had a physical capability, the physical strength, to pull back a bow and arrow. But was it, was it a possibility to ever do that? No. And that's stupid. And people are always bringing up these weird things. And you know, it's like saying... You know, to say is it, it's possible for Jesus to sin, or if it was possible for Jesus to sin then, it's possible for Him to sin now. Because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, you know, then yeah, it would be possible for Him to throw a saved person into hell. If it was possible for Him to sin, but it's not. It never was possible. And there's all different levels people take this to. When people start teaching that Jesus had some kind of sin nature, you know, then yeah, these people are unsaved heretics. Alright? But a lot of times this is just stupid philosophical stuff, and we got to be careful with it because it's like the you know, well, what if Adam and Eve hadn't ate of that fruit? Well, you know what? Guess what's going to happen? When we start talking about that stuff. We're going to start arguing about things. You know, what if what if the Jews would have accepted Jesus as their Messiah? Would Jesus have had to go to the cross? Would he have just set up his kingdom right then? I've heard people bring all this stuff up before. It's stupid. Forever, O Lord, is thy word settled in heaven. Okay? It is so dumb to say that anything else other than what happened could have happened. It's just, we're going off into territory, we're going to end up making ourselves look stupid, and we're going to get in a fight about something that doesn't matter. Because in the end, what happened happened, and what the Bible says is going to happen is going to happen. And that's why the stupid Mandela effect's retarded too. Okay? Have you ever heard of the Mandela effect? Y'all look at me. Yeah, that's you know, where CERN did stuff. It went back in time and it changed the Scriptures. You can't change the Bible. Not even CERN can change that. Oh, it, it says the wolf lays down with the lamb and not the lion. I, don't, I remember right after I heard about the stupid Mandela effect, because I thought the Bible said the lion lied down with the lamb too. I've heard it a million times. But I look at it I was like, sure enough, it says wolf. And we went to the Sights and Sound Theater in Branson, Missouri, and they got a great big lion lying down with the lamb there. This is proof. <laughs> but no, it's just it's just you know mass stupidity. Alright. Yeah, it might in the NIV, I don't know. But it's not in the King James. But anyway, Matthew nine eighteen, I'm getting sidetracked on all these things. There's, there's all these just stupid what ifs. There is no what if with the Bible. There is no what if with Jesus Christ. There is none. Jesus is the Word. Okay? And you're not going to change the Word. You never could change the Word. You never will be able to change the Word. And it's just, when you start talking about what ifs, you're just going into Stupidville. Alright? And we need to stay out of Stupidville best we can. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. It says, and I don't have, well, yeah, we'll go to those. Matthew 9, 18 says, While he spake, these things unto them. Behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making noise, he said to them, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. I don't know if you all realize what you just read here. I said Jesus was not capable of sin. Jesus fulfilled every bit of that Old Testament law. And I personally don't believe that Jesus was ever even ceremonially defiled. But yet, we see two examples in that one passage of someone defiling Jesus 
legally speaking, and Jesus defiling Himself. Alright? Look at what it says, and we don't have time to turn to all of these, um, but in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, uh, Jesus touches a leper and heals him. Verses 1 through 3. He touches a leper and heals him. Now turn to Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5. So, we see Jesus touching a leper. We see a woman with an issue of blood touching him, his garment. We see Jesus touching a dead body. Well, look what it says in Numbers chapter 5, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper and every one that hath an issue, and whosoever is defiled by the dead. Both male and female shall you put out without the camp, shall you put them, that they defile not their camps in the midst whereof I dwell. And the children of Israel did so and put them out without the camp, as the Lord spake unto Moses, so did the children of Israel. Anyone with an issue, anyone with uh, leprosy, Anyone who is you know, defiled with the dead, put them out of the camp, is what the Bible says. Look at Leviticus 13 and verse 45. Leviticus 13 and verse 45. It says, And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent and his head bare, and he shall put a covering upon his upper lip, and shall cry, Unclean, unclean, all the days wherein the plague shall be in him. He shall be defiled, he is unclean, he shall dwell alone without the camp, shall his habitation be. So we see these people are supposed to be left out of the camp. In uh, Leviticus 15, verse 19, it says, And the priest shall offer... Or wait, that's 14. It says, And if a woman have an issue, and her issue in her flesh be blood, she shall be put apart seven days, and whosoever toucheth her shall be unclean until the even. And everything that she lieth upon in her separation shall be unclean. And everything that she sitteth upon shall be unclean. And whosoever toucheth her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be unclean until the even. And whosoever toucheth anything that she sat upon shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. And if it be on her bed or on anything whereon she sitteth, when he toucheth it, he shall be unclean until even. And if any man lie with her at all and her flowers be upon him, he shall be unclean seven days and all the bed whereon he lieth shall be unclean. I show you all that to show you all these things that can make people unclean or defiled. Okay? And so here we have Jesus touching a leper. But what happened when Jesus touched a leper? Did Jesus get defiled? No, the leper became clean. What happened when the woman with an issue of blood touched Jesus? Without Jesus even trying, what ended up happening? She was not even able to defile Him. He could not be defiled. Not even by accident. What happened when Jesus would touch a dead body? It wasn't a dead body anymore. You see, I show you all these things to just show how it was impossible for Jesus to sin. Why? Because He was holy. He was holy not just because He was God. Even His flesh was holy. Alright? Even the Son is holy. You know, all three persons of the Trinity, all holy. That's why I was saying holy, holy, holy. And even the very flesh of Jesus, the body itself was holy. That's why His body went in the tomb. And what the Bible said, Thou wilt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou shalt not leave my soul in hell, nor suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Talking about the body of Jesus Christ. And people, they get all confused and they get all, because it's like, well, what about the temptation? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because you know what? God cannot be tempted with sin, neither tempted to any man. Okay? Jesus Christ was tempted, but not with the things that are against the law. You know, he tempted him with, Satan tempted him with turning a stone into bread. Was well, it a sin to eat bread? If you had the power to turn a stone into bread, would that be a sin for you to do that? It would be pretty cool if you could do that. Alright, but Satan, he's just trying to tempt Jesus. Trying to get him doing stuff. Trying to get him to act at his will. Okay? And you say, and then, but what about in the Garden of Gethsemane? See, and I, we're not going to take time to go into this. We talked about this when we were in Hebrews. Okay? But remember how one of the things Jesus had to do so He could be a good high priest is He had to be obedient to the will of the Father. And we see very clearly in the Bible it was not His will. It was not His desire. I don't believe so much... You know, He says, if it would be possible, let this cup pass from Him. While we know that He endured the cross, the Bible says, while we know He despised the shame, I personally think 
what made it so difficult for Jesus to the point he's sweating as it were great drops of blood is the fact that he was going to become the sinner for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That right there, I believe, is where his will and the Father's will conflicted. You see, the Father knew he has to become sin in order to pay for sin. Jesus Christ, who is holy, would have no desire for that. Okay. Now, while you and I desire sin because we have a sin nature, Jesus Christ did not have a sin nature. So the thought of taking the sin of man on Him and becoming the sinner there on that cross was a horrible thought that He had no desire for. There was nothing in Him that desired that. But you know what? He was obedient and He submitted to the Father and He did exactly what He was told to do even though it went against Him to the point He was sweating great drops of blood. To the point that He thought He was going to die. To the point that angels had to come and minister to Him after He got done praying that prayer. That's, that's where the big temptation was. The, you know, the, I think the real temptation was not taking that cup of sin. Not sinning, but just taking on that sin. You and I, we cannot imagine what that's like. We can't, we can't even fathom that because we are so unholy, because we are so sinful. And we see though that Jesus was able to do all that because He was righteous. And therefore, we should do like it says in Psalms 97, and we should rejoice in His righteousness. We should be thankful for His righteousness. We should sing about His righteousness. We should take great joy and pleasure in that because Jesus Christ, He was he was our high priest, wasn't He? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 3. You say, because all, all those laws you, you were reading back in the old, from the Old Testament that defiled Jesus, you're saying would have defiled Jesus, that was for the priests. Well, Jesus was our high priest. Hebrews 3.1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. We see Jesus did exactly what he was supposed to do. Jesus Christ was obedient. He wasn't doing what he wanted to do at that when he went to the cross. He was doing what the Father wanted to do. And the reason he didn't want to go to the cross, it wasn't because of any sin, anything sinful in him. It was because he was so holy. That was why. And so we need we see that our God is superior to all gods in many ways and for many reasons. Alright? But one of the main reasons that we see highlighted in Psalms 97 is because of his righteousness. And that's why it mentions in there too, it you know, it talks about uh, you know in verse seven or verse six, the heavens declare his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. And this is something that is shown in all the world. Why does he do this? Because he is the savior of the whole world. They all need to see how superior he is. There is nothing righteous about a statue. Okay, you're not going to look at a statue and look at it and think, "Wow, how mighty, how righteous." It can fix my sins. Okay? That's the work of man's hands. Man can do those things. But when you look at creation, man cannot duplicate creation. Man can't even come close. And creation itself declares an all-powerful and a righteous and holy God. And that is exactly what we need as sinful man. A righteous and holy God. There is no other holy God. There is only one that is holy. There is only one that is righteous. There is only one man that was ever righteous and holy. And that was Jesus Christ. And so, you know, you say, well, you know, the whole impeccability of Christ is not important. Well, it is important. It is important because it's a, we, need, we need to make it clear that there was nothing unrighteous about our Savior. Nothing. There was no sin in Him. He was perfect in every way possible. And that is that is important because that 
shows us, that shows the world that He is the only one that can take away sins. Got a lot of people today that are trying to get to heaven through a lot of different ways. We got a lot of people today that, you know, they believe in Jesus or whatever, but they don't think He's the only way to heaven. Really, so you know of another holy God. You know, you know of another God that's righteous. I know you can't be talking about Muhammad, he was a pervert. Alright? I know you can't be talking about Mary. Mary said, I rejoice in God my Savior. Mary needed a Savior too. Mary didn't stay a virgin. She had many other children later. You know, just I, you can't be there. There is no other God, and so this declaring His righteousness is a very important thing because of the fact that it's what, it, it's one of the things that will cause people to say it's got to be Jesus. He's the only way. And why do you think the devil attacks that? Why do you think the Da Vinci Code was so popular? You know, because it put it in a, it put it in people's head that maybe Jesus did sin. Or at least what it did for a lot of people, well, it's possible that, that could have happened. But it's okay if it did. You know, okay, all right, you know, he, got, he got married or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's fine. And so, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, they wouldn't criticize Jesus for that. You know, what, what's wrong with them liking a woman or something? Hey, that wasn't what he came for. He, he, that, that never happened. But people, they want to get you doubting. They want to get you questioning those things. And we need to understand that His righteousness is a very key thing that is one, up, one more thing that separates Him from all other gods. Okay? The Trinity is one of the things that separates Him from all other gods. And His holiness and His righteousness separates Him from all other gods. Even in Greek mythology, with all those gods they have, they don't even pretend any of them are righteous. All those ancient Egyptian gods, they don't even pretend any of them are righteous. There, I can't... I mean, somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Is there any other religion in the world that claims to have a God that is holy and without sin? Not that I know of. Only, Jesus, only our God, only Jesus Christ... And that is a key thing that we got to get out there, because we don't believe in this idea that you know we're all serving the same God and we can all go to heaven as long as we serve. No, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him, and His righteousness is one of the things that distinguishes Him from all God, all gods. And His righteousness is what we need if we're going to go to heaven, and we can only get that through faith in the work on His death, burial, and resurrection. So. Look at that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. I pray that we'll, we learn some good lessons from these that will uh, you know, avoid the foolish questions and then just uh, the goofy things that pop up, Lord, the dumb questions people ask that often cause contention. I pray we'll stay away from those things. I pray, Lord, that we'll declare Your righteousness. I pray we'll do it among the heathen. Lord, as, uh, this Saturday as we go out soul winning, I pray You'll uh, bless us as we go and we declare Your righteousness to other people. And I pray that they will have a desire for that righteousness. And I will pray they'll, uh, they'll call on you uh, so you can give that to them freely, dear God. And we thank you for all you did. We thank you for going to the cross and making a way of salvation for us. And Lord, uh, you, you are a good God and a mighty God. And that is an understatement. And we, I thank you for the Psalms that uh, help us say these things in a better way uh, that, that you're worthy of. And we just pray you'll uh, just bless us. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand.